How does God feel when he looks at you? Before I have you consider that question any further, I want to share with you how James answered that question. Not James, the guy who wrote the book of the Bible, but James, the guy that I met during my vicar or intern year down in Covington, Georgia. Uh, James was about twice my size with like 10 times the muscle mass packed into his frame. Besides having the deepest voice of any person I've ever known myself, he's also the only one, the only one that I'm aware of at least, that has committed murder. Now, James didn't get too deep into all the details, um, but based on some of the clues that he shared with me, I have every reason to believe that he was some kind of hitman or enforcer for the mob in New York. Now, by the time that James eventually wandered into our church, he had already spent a number of years in prison. Uh, But he was at a point in his life where he was genuinely trying to turn things around. He had an honest job. He had a a fiancé. Oh, and James also had a tremendous, tremendous amount of guilt. He shared with me once that he was certain when God looked at him, he was like already dangling the hangman's noose. After all, considering everything that James had done in his life, how couldn't that be the case? Back to the question. How does God feel? When he looks at you, how does God feel when he sees you succumbing yet again to that addiction that has pulled you under already so many countless times during your life? How does he feel when he sees you enthusiastically believing and maybe even repeating some of the lies that you hear from the world around you? Or when he sees those angry outbursts against your spouse? How does God react when he sees your worry, your anxiety, your depression, your seeming inability to to trust him and rest in him fully? What does God think when he sees all of the ways that you've been unfaithful in your various relationships of life? What happens in God's heart when he sees the very worst parts of yourself, the things that you hope nobody else will ever know about? What does God think when he sees sinful, broken, selfish you? It's important whenever we are considering God's heart or how God feels, to look at the life of Jesus and how he interacted with people in the gospel histories of his life. After all, in, there we go, in Colossians 2 verse 9, we read that in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, meaning that he is God in the flesh. And so when we see how he interacts with the various people that he encounters, we are seeing a perfect representation of God's own heart for people. 
And in our reading today from the end of Matthew 9 going into Matthew 10, we are going to see a strong emotion, a strong reaction of Jesus to a situation that he encounters. Even more than that, we are going to see how this impacts us personally as well as how it impacts our gospel ministry. Our ministry both at Bethany and as those who bear Christ's name in our personal lives. Now, when we pick things up in these verses, uh, we're still fairly early on in Jesus' public ministry. He has just recently called to himself the last of his 12 disciples, which we actually heard about in Pastor Brown's message last week. And that's where we're picking things up then. We're just going to read the first couple of verses for right now as we hear this. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. What does God see when he looks at you? How does God feel when he looks at you? When he sees the addiction, when he sees the worry, when he sees all the, the, the bitterness and resentment, when he sees the very worst parts of you. We actually get an answer to that question here. You see, these Jews that Jesus encountered as he traveled throughout those towns and villages of Galilee, they were not so unlike us. They dealt with the same sins, the same struggles, the same kinds of misunderstandings, the same devilish assaults that we face today. And whoever it was that Jesus encountered, what was his reaction? What was the reaction of his heart? It was compassion. Now that Greek word to the verb, to have compassion, um, really comes from the, the same base word that means like your guts. It is like a visceral reaction to something. You kind of Maybe you can think of times when you kind of just feel that movement in yourself all in here and not in the gross bathroom way either, okay? It's that kind of gut-punched feeling that you get when maybe your friend comes to you and is, and is totally despondent because their wife just grabbed the kids and, and walked away, walked off, right? It's that, that gutted feeling maybe that you experience um, when, when you see those animal adoption commercials with the sad kitties and the sad puppies listening to the Sarah McLaughlin music in the background. Maybe that's why they're sad, by the way. It's that kind of punch-in-the-gut feeling that I got when I was speaking to James for the last time through a thick slab of glass as this behemoth of a man was bawling his eyes out because he had been imprisoned yet again for, frankly, what was a fairly minor and accidental violation of his parole. And that's what Jesus feels as he encounters these people. Compassion. It's like a punch in the gut to him. And we, when we remember who Jesus is, that he is God himself in the flesh, here's the takeaway for you and me. Our brokenness makes God feel gutted. 
Yes, it's true that God hates sin, and yet it's also very true that his heart goes out to each and every one of you. He has compassion for you who fall under those whispered lies when when Satan likes to dangle those shiny things in front of you that he knows you're going to bite on again and again. Compassion for you who are so bombarded by all these confusing and disorienting messages of the world that that you sometimes don't know what's up and what's down anymore. It's that gutted feeling. God feels gutted when he sees you broken and bleeding. Yes, even because of the stupid decisions that you make or because of the addictions that you've gotten yourself entangled in. When you're left reeling with bitterness and anxiety and and despair, maybe because of some very unpleasant things that have happened to you simply as a result of living in this sin-broken world. God feels compassion for each and every one of us. It guts him. And I think that sometimes when we are, especially when we are in the the depths of our guilt and our brokenness, sometimes we maybe are tempted to look at God like James, James from my story did. Like he's looming over us, scowling, red in the face, dangling that hangman's noose and just waiting to ratchet it around our necks. When what God is really doing is looking down with love and with deep concern as he is casting out to you his lifeline. You see, God is so filled with love for you and me that he doesn't just stop at pity for us, right? Pity kind of sees somebody in a tough situation, a bad situation, and maybe feels bad. Like, oh, you know, when when I'm scrolling on my phone from one news article about tornado victims in Texas to like another news article about a baby zebra at the zoo that just met a frog for its very first time. Sometimes I think we tend to to think of that, think of God like that, like, like, well, oh well, they're just kind of in this mess that they made and, and, and what's to happen? No, God steps in. That's what compassion does. Doesn't just see somebody in their plight and walk away. Compassion steps in. Compassion intervenes. After all, that's why Jesus was there, wasn't it? That's why Jesus was traveling among all these towns and villages of Galilee. That's why he spent just about every waking moment he could, healing these people who had been broken and preaching the truth to minds that had been twisted and and distorted by, by devilish lies or teaching his disciples to do the same when he would be gone. That's why God became flesh, why he became this man, Jesus, so that he could ultimately take that hangman's noose around his own neck so that he would rescue us from our guilt, from our sin, from death by letting all those things bury him instead of us. 
That's this compassion of God that we see in Jesus. And so that is the compassion we can be sure of God himself for us. And when you couple that compassion of God to suffer, even to die for us, with his capacity, his infinite capacity for healing, what we are left with at the end is nothing less than resurrection and complete restoration. You see, God has already caught you up in that lifeline through faith in that compassionate sacrifice of Jesus. God is already reeling you in to a place where brokenness is no more, to a place where resurrection to life means an abrupt and final end to guilt and dread and anxiety and despair. And yet as he is towing us in, we remember that he has also given us lifelines of our own to cast out to the rest of these floundering people that we see around us. And God expects that we who have been saved by this compassionate ministry, this, this gospel ministry and work of Jesus, he expects that we are going to make good use of those lifelines. And that's what we find as we go on with the next couple verses. So Jesus has been taking his disciples around. They have been seeing all this compassion. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. You know how God feels when he looks at you. So how do you now feel when you look at all of the broken people around you? How do you feel when you see somebody whose lifelong political leanings, whether on one side of the aisle or another, have exposed them to lies and to evils that they now believe are good and right? How do you feel about somebody Whose, whose deep loneliness and despair at life has led them into the, the web of substance abuse, which in turn maybe does hurt other people around them, has maybe even hurt you very, very deeply. How do you feel about somebody like James, who has literally had human blood on his hands? You look upon them with indignance, disgust, and revulsion? Or do you see them the way that God did and does look at you with compassion? Do you see them as enemies that need to be swept away? Or do you see them as shepherdless sheep who have never had a good or loving shepherd to guide them? Are they weeds to be uprooted and burned? Or do you see them as a harvest that is just waiting to be gathered into the safe shelter of God's storehouses. Jesus is making sure that his disciples understand this, that being transformed by his compassion now means a new viewpoint, a new approach to these other people of their own. And he's making sure that we understand that today as well. And it's our second key point, that those for whom God has shown compassion now show compassion. That we understand that these people we see around us so desperately need exactly and only what we have. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't 
still find the sin itself disgusting, both ours and that of others. It doesn't mean that we don't still stand in the way of injustice and violence when we must. It means, though, that we see them as people, the crowds and crowds of people through that lens of Christ's sacrificial compassion. That we remember that they, just like we have been in our lives, are harassed by Satan and are helpless to dig themselves out of that sin problem. And then to cry out to God that he might send them the help that they need. And yet, you and I have been called to go beyond that called to go beyond simply praying and then sitting back and waiting for things to happen. In this matter, God has also called upon every single one of us to become an answer to that prayer. So let's move on here with the rest of our verses from chapter 10. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Jesus told his disciples to pray for workers in the harvest field, and then he sent them right out into that harvest field, didn't he? Now when you look at that list of names in verses 2 to 4, from Andrew to a zealot, There's nothing innately special or outstanding about these people. They were men who were broken by sin just like you and me and who had also received God's free compassion for them. And so God sent them out two by two to proclaim his compassion to others. That's what brings us to our final key point today. God puts extraordinary people to extraordinary work. You don't need to be some great public speaker or orator to do this. You don't need to be an influential figure or a politician. You don't need to be some billionaire philanthropist in order to do this work. Whoever you are, wherever you are, God has given you this work of showing his compassion to the people of this world around you. Remember, compassion goes beyond pity. Compassion doesn't just feel bad for people. Compassion implies that one takes the steps that they can in order to stand between the sufferer and whatever it is that is causing their suffering. For these 12 that were given Christ's authority to perform miracles, it did mean standing between the sick and their various diseases. It meant even standing between a corpse and death. And yet even as they did these incredible things, it meant that they brought God's greatest intervention of all 
as they stood between lost sheep and the realm of eternal death by proclaiming to them that the kingdom of God had come in Christ Jesus. For me, it meant standing between James and all that guilt and the brokenness that came with it as I met with him for the last time before I left Georgia. Not because I intervened with myself, my wisdom, my solutions, my encouragements, but because I brought with me that cross of Jesus, of Christ crucified to pay for every last drop of James' sin and my sin and the sin of this whole world. And that's the work that God now sets all of us to, to bring the compassion of this kingdom, the kingdom in which disease and sickness and death are undone, a kingdom in which everything that is broken will be mended again, the kingdom in which sheep eternally follow a good shepherd who died for them and rose again so that they would never have to feel lost, harassed, or helpless again. You know God's compassion, and now you get to be God's great intervention. You get to be God's hands and his feet. You get to be God's mouth and his voice as you show his compassion to a dying world. Amen. 